Ready? So welcome back to Diaries of the Wild Ones. Once again, a huge thank you to Wild Earth Australia for supporting me in the adventurous lifestyle. If you guys need any gear for your next adventure, running, camping, climbing, hiking, you guys name it, these guys have it. So go to wildearth.com.au and put in the 10% discount code, my diary, all one word, capital letters, wildearth.com.au. Okay, so now you guys know that I live in Crescent Head and we love our little town and my friends and neighbors here have started Crescent Head Brewing Co. Not only do I love supporting small business, I love supporting just good humans. So let's give a big shout out to Crescent Head Brewing Co. And next time you come to our little town, stop into the tavern or the tavern bottle and support the locals. Two beers to choose from, a fruity XBA or a Chris Lager. Surf the point all day. Then have a Crescent Head Brewing Co. beer watching the waves as the sun goes down. That's the point, right? Now remember, when you come to Creso, enjoy this beautiful place and our local beer. But remember to leave no trace and take your garbage with you, please, guys. So welcome back to the podcast, surfing legend Andrew McKinnon. He's been on the podcast before and what an amazing chat that was. This time he's come on to promote Legends of Surf 1972, an expedition being held on the Gold Coast this month, 29th of April to the 5th of May. The expedition is on at Ridges Hotel, Gold Coast Airport. And then the 6th to 8th of May, expedition on at QT Hotel, Stag on Street, Surface Paradise. Win an S-Lab experience worth $1,500 to create your own magic surfboard of choice by visiting the expedition venues and go on the free draw thanks to surfboard warehouse now guys this episode right here it is absolutely brilliant i love this era i love this time it's what shaped our surfing culture today you know get down to the expedition and check it out and enjoy this story time from back then Andrew McKinnon. So once again, we've got you on Diaries of the Wild Ones. This time, this is actually really nice because we're down at Corumban, which is, you know, my old stomping ground where I grew up and it's where you've lived, you know, pretty much your whole life, but where you've been the voice of the morning surf on the radio for me, just to surf these waves right here. And now we're sitting down in the morning. It's so iconic, you know, and before we really get into it, we should acknowledge the traditional owners of the land, you know, First Nation Australians and all the Indigenous people of Australia and the world. Where we are here at Currumbin, it was called Currumbin with a K, but this particular area we are on the estuary of Currumbin Creek is called Tarabora. Now, there's this great maverick campaigner in the day, Wilf Ardell, who came out with a group of people in the 70s when they wanted to build a marina, would you believe, out at Kurumman Alley, and they were going to plant the casino out there as well. There's a full story around at Pirate Park here. If you ever come down, you can read the history of it, what Wilf Ardell and all his supporters did. And they basically stopped that from happening. 
Gold Coast has had a history of developments coming in. Um, But that was the first really big one. So what that did, that ended up making this place into a sanctuary, thanks to the efforts of Wilf Ardell. Thank you very much, Wilf. Yeah. Tarabora. This is a special Aboriginal sacred ground we're sitting on here at the moment, Aaron. Wow, what a story. And also the fact that Crumb and Wildlife Sanctuary is just across the estuary there. We've got all these birds around that you're going to hear on the mic. You're going to hear the, the wind coming through. But I was just thinking as you're telling that, if they didn't, I was just thinking the importance of activism and, you know, supporting these these sacred places and, and you know, kind of stopping development where I was just I was just literally thinking that this is the beach I grew up on. This is the beach that I learned to surf in. If that development went through in the 70s, I wouldn't be who I am today. Yeah. And luckily uh, it didn't happen. And the casino went to Broadbeach instead. And then the marina idea fell apart. Which keeps coming back and back, you know. Always. Mm. Um, at one particular stage on the Gold Coast, Peter Turner, who had been a deputy mayor, said they had marinas from Burley right through to Snapper for each of the points. That's how crazy the thinking was back then. So, you know, Gold Coast is renowned for its tourism development. Mm-hmm. And through Gold Coast World Surfing Reserve, we've tried to get the beaches acknowledged to be protected. We've only got ceremonial status. We'd really like to get legislation to protect, but that's another story and that's a fight for another day. But at the moment, we're sort of trying to keep it in check. So we've got the balance of the tourism, the economy and the environment. So, Yeah, and what a hard game to play. Very hard. Yeah, well, th- always, I thank you every time Time um, I see you, just, <laughs> just for the work that you do to try to protect these places, you know? Well, that's right. So that leads me into what's Legends of Surf 72 exhibition all about. So the idea is, you know, to raise the awareness of surf culture and make people feel really good about where we came from. And 1972 was such a formative year. It was, as Rabbit says, it was a breakaway year where things were moving really fast and, you know, everything was in a state of change and a flux of change, if you know what I mean. And, um, you know, by the end of the year, when Gough Whitlam came in, he took us out of Vietnam. He changed the social... uh, Dynamic. Dynamic, the landscape of Australia with all these social reforms for Aboriginals, for women, for the unions, the workplace the environment, it went on and on and on. But, uh, you know, halfway through that year in June, no one really knew what was going to happen next. And, you know, you mentioned to me yesterday about Wayne Lynch. Well, Wayne Lynch should have been in the 1972 Australian team, but Wayne had decided to opt out of contest. You know, there was a period in 71, 72, where Nat and Wayne, you know, they, they were the, the, the two, really, the demagogues, and, of course, Midget Farrelly, but they decided to stop competing, and there was this sort of anti-contest thing going. But all us young guns, we, we thought, yeah, sure, OK, no worries, but we're going to keep competing because we want to represent Australia and we want to get to the World Surfing Championship. So, you know, after May 1972, we had the national titles and Michael Peterson won that, and... Um, they developed the team from 71 and 72, as it turned out. 
So in the end, there were 21 of us in the team, including a couple of managers, uh, a couple of um, judges, no coaches in those days. This is before leg ropes. Um, it's before how it all works now, like mm. the training and and you know the management of pro surfers. It's so dramatically different compared to then. We're all just out there having a great old time, you know. No one took it that serious. How old were you when you were in the Australian team? Okay, so I was just shy of 19. Now, you know, of course, 19 was the call-up. Yeah. And, you know, I turned 19 on the 23rd of July 1972. But I already had a strategy to get out of Australia before that. And I enrolled in the Kauai Community College. In Hawaii. In Hawaii. So I was halfway to California by the time the World Surfing Championships happened in October. So I went under the radar. They couldn't get and me. Off. As a 19-year-old in the community as a pro surfer or on the Australian surfing team, was that idolised back then? Like, was the culture in surfing rich enough for you to be looked at like, you know, how Mick Fenning is looked at today? Like, what yep. was the community like back then? Well, like I said, it was the start. The old guard had sort of fallen away. Nat, Midget, mm. Wayne, they'd all sort of opt out. So there's this new generation coming through. Michael Peterson, PT, Rabbit, Simon Anderson, Mark Richards, Terry Fitzgerald. Terry was probably the oldest one in the team. He was sort of probably more well-known than most. And, you know, of course, there was women's too, but the women's only got an allocation of three. I think there were 12 men, you know. That's how it was in those days. They, they worked that out on the numbers in the association. There was mm. a huge disparity there. But getting back to the Wayne Lynch factor, yeah, when Wayne decided not to compete, you know, he'd won four Australian junior titles in a row from 1967 to 1970. You know, what a stretch. No one's done that since. And he should have been still competing. And if he was, he, he would have made the team easily. But he decided that he was anti-contest. And then he got called up. That was a real shock. For Vietnam. He got yeah. called up for Vietnam. <clears throat> and the local sergeant at Lawn uh, Police, who loved Wayne and the family and everything, basically said, mate, you've been called up. You better disappear, otherwise I've got to arrest you. That's what they were doing. So Wayne went on the run for about you know four or five months. And, um, you know, I've read since then that that really was disturbing for him, that he was constantly in hiding and looking over his shoulder. And, you know, if you've, that, that's not a good place to be no. when, when you're thinking at any moment now you could be arrested, right? And as it turned out, Michael Peterson and I turned up at Burley one day in, in June. This is us who just won the national title and just before we went to California and just before I went to Hawaii and... The waves were pumping at Burley. Everybody's out there and, you know, Druin's down there making um, coffee, you know, with a little fireplace and putting rum in it. And, <laughs> you know, um, so Mike and I turned up and then Nat pulls up with Wayne Lynch, Russell Hughes, Bill Money, Rusty Miller from Byron Bay. Wow. You know, a big all team. these greats. All, all these greats, all these legends. And MP said to me, oh, should we go over there and share something with them you know yeah i'll leave that to your imagination and i said i said well you don't have to prove anything to any of those guys you're number one now <laughs> and he went oh okay so we went over there and wayne was particularly happy to see michael because they'd competed against each other in the juniors 
and you know they'd actually competed in the 1970 world titles down at Bells and Joanna and Wayne knew how good Michael was and basically knew that he was the next big new, thing well he's he the next was the th he was and he was the next new Nat Young because Wayne Lynch was supposed to be the next new Here Nat comes Young. one of the aeroplanes the you know the well <laughs> we, the we haven't had that for a couple of years so that's all right. Um, it's so nice. Yeah, the Gold Coast Airport is alive again. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, he really missed out in more ways than one. And it took him a few years to recover from that. Wayne did make a comeback in 1975 and he won the Coke Classic. And then he was running up to Larry Blair. I think it was 78. I can't remember the year there. But was it, Were you guys highly competitive? I know you're saying mm. like you're hanging out and it sounds like you're all friends. But at the same time, did you have that rich competitiveness? Oh, absolutely. Michael was just a tiger. You know, he wouldn't say much on land, but in the water, he was just like this out-of-control beast that just would out-paddle you, and he would just do 10 manoeuvres to your one, and he'd go 10 times deeper in the barrel. He was this frantic surfing machine. It was incredible to watch. And um, So if you... If you're coming up against him in a heat, was he the one that you're always nervous about? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, we competed as juniors, <clears throat> excuse me, but, you know, PT and Rabbit and I competed against Michael as juniors, and we were all sort of a little bit level pegged in those days, you know, I'm talking 1970. But by 1972, that had all changed. Michael was head and shoulders above everybody. And there were a lot of great surfers in that team, but as I said, Hardly anyone had heard of these people. Mm. You know, they'd heard of Nat and Midget and Wayne Lynch and Peter Drawn and all those sort of guys. So when we turned up at California, it was this new Aussie guard of surfers. And, and it became a new Australian generation of surfers moving through. So by the time we got to Hawaii, Paul Nielsen, who didn't do that well in California, he came into his own in Hawaii and he won the first event, the Smirnoff at Haleiwa you know, an eight to 10 feet surf, that was a huge win for the Aussies and the new young Aussies, right? Yeah. I think Hackman got second. Jeff Hackman was like uh, Mr. Sunset. He was really king of Hawaii. So I was yeah. putting our Australian team on the map. When, when you guys first came, went to Hawaii as a new team, did they take you seriously? Were they worried about... No. Were the Hawaiians worried about the Australians? Were the Californians worried about the Australians? Not at all. And they were quite shocked from that first result that the Aussies went first and third. Grant Dapper Oliver for North Narrowman got a third. So, and not all of the Australians were in that event as well. And, you know, I, I remember hearing Felipe Poma from Peru, you know, he was the 1965 world champion and he'd moved to Hawaii and he'd become a big wave Hawaiian specialist. He said, wow, he couldn't believe how fast these new Aussies had adapted to the surf on the north shore of Oahu. That big, that powerful. And that's what I was just thinking. These are in the days with no leg ropes, hey. That's right. So Heli Eva, I, I'm, I surfed a big, big one day, and there's a lot of water moving out there. You're constantly water. paddling. So if you, how are you holding on to your board? <laughs> like, like if you lose oh. your board, like it's, it's probably going one way and you're going the other. So um, back then, you'd have to be even more of a, a waterman than what you are, that what you need to be today. Yeah, that's right. And then, you know, the contest moved over. There were three events, but this is before the Triple Crown was actually established. So 
Fred Hemmings, Randy Rarick and Bernie Baker, they'd organised these three events on the North Shore. And really, that was the start of the professional era. Okay, the Smyrnoth had happened previously, the Duke had happened previously, but not three big events. The third one was the Hang Ten. And the Hang Ten, George Downing, he was organising that. And he tried to bring in this objective scoring system where you got judged on manoeuvres only. And that actually followed through to Bells Beach in 73 for the first Ripcoil Pro. And it was used for three years after that that Michael Peterson won easily because it was on manoeuvres and he did 10 manoeuvres to everyone else's one. So they yeah. scrapped it. I, I think that MP crushed the objective scoring system in the end and they sort of went back to basics and then they went back to 10 points and you know it used to be I think in some finals it could be your best four even Mm. best five and then it went back to best three and now these days it's your best two but um, yeah that that was uh, the proviso of the triple crown and so then Paul Nielsen and PT got in the finals of the Duke and the Hang Ten at sunset, both held at sunset. So that proved that it wasn't just, you know, a fluke that Nielsen had won Holly Eva, that these guys could back it up at sunset and, and make both finals. In fact, had they had a triple crown then, uh, Paul would have won, the, he would have been triple crown champion in 72. So Paul and, and others really redeemed Australia's reputation there because we got our asses kicked in California. PT got a third. He got a third behind Jimmy Blairs and David Nueva. But then he really enhanced his big wave reputation in Hawaii later on too. So that really developed his professional career. Mm. And of course, Paul Nielsen and Rick Nielsen, his older brother, there's a big plane going overhead. Hello, Virgin. Uh-huh. That's Virgin from Bali. Yeah. Is that Richard the- Branson ha- holding him <laughs> to the tail? There's a question I really want to ask about you guys back in back in that day, being all from the east coast of Australia, and and you know we we do have really good waves here, but we don't have the power that matches WA. We don't have the power here that comes anywhere near close to Hawaii. Mm. What was it like when you first went over and felt that power of the ocean there, the power of those waves? Was that Uh, just out of your comfort zone? It's a complete shock. And my first trip to Hawaii was in 1969. I was only 16 and the first day I turned up at sunset it's 15 to 17 feet with like huge huge peaks out the back and I thought wow how do you surf this I had a 6'6 stringless hot dogger and a 7 foot down rail <laughs> they're all out there on you know 8 foot 4 super guns and really for most of that trip I just sat and watched everything I just I watched the Duke, I watched Joe Cabell win the Duke on an eight foot four, 20 inch wide, nearly five inches thick. It was a whiteboard that he called the white ghost that Mike Diffenderfer had made for him. And at that particular time, Joe Cabell was the fastest surfer on the North Shore. He was just an incredible waterman. He'd surfed 20 foot waves at Honolulu. The stories of Cabell were incredible. He just had a heart attack a couple of weeks ago and it wasn't looking good um, in Aspen, Colorado, but he made a miraculous comeback and then he, he's okay. So really oh, glad to hear you yeah. pulled through, Joey. But, so he was my first big inspiration. 
and you know Rusty Miller and Mike Doyle always sharing a house with these guys and they'd just go out and play at sunset and um, so it just made you really just step up so you just get comfortable in that zone exactly so when I did come home Oh, I couldn't wait to attack the waves with a vengeance, you know. Yeah. Like, oh, it's nice and easy now back on the beach breaks. There's no coral reef. It's not hard breaking. I'm going to do super late takeoffs. I'm going to try and get in the barrel. So Hawaii really did push you because, and it's still the same to this day, really, every surfer of their worth, you know, to really prove themselves need to show they can do it in Hawaii. And mm. uh, Hawaii is the ultimate testing ground for sure yeah it definitely took me out of my comfort zone it took me a little bit to get used to it and and it's different boards i surfed my step up the whole time yeah when i was over there just it's just so powerful okay back to 1972 back to the nielsen this is one of the nielsen brothers from brother yeah that's right paul was the younger brother of rick so they've just so where the aussies have just dominated the three events over there and this Mm. is the middle of 1972 which is shaping Mm. you know the the what was to come next yeah exactly right and yeah so they'd actually started the formation of brothers nielsen in 71 paul had won the 1971 australian title from rick as it turned out they were first and second and so they came back with the Australian Championship model and Rick was the shaper, so Rick would shape for Paul and Rick shaped uh, the boards that Paul won at Holly Eva and one of those boards is going to be in the exhibition Legends of Surf 82, one of the original boards, so really wow. excited about that. But uh, that, that was a competitive scene, right? So we, we're all leaning towards that, but we're also leaning to just going surfing and traveling. And the big thing that broke through in 1972, of course, was the Morning of the Earth movie. Now, Albie Felsen had interviewed me in June for tracks. And it was sort of funny because when uh, when we met up to do the interview, he said, oh, I just had a big night at the Opera House launching Morning of the Earth. And I said, oh, what's that? He said, oh, it's a new movie. I said, oh, that, that sounds great. I can't wait to see that not realizing just how big this movie was going to be. And then Albie did this interview with me and I think I've sent you a copy of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a page, anyway. I then remembered how in 71, I'd seen Albie and Stephen Kearney, who was in the movie. And Stephen Kearney had worked in tracks as well. Stephen Kearney was an incredible surfer from the Northern beaches of Sydney. Naturally gifted, beautiful style and really progressive, really innovative. And they were sitting in this vegetarian restaurant in surface in 1971, and they were being very coy. You know, yeah. and I was sort of thinking, what are you guys doing? And they said, oh, we've just come back from Indonesia. I said, oh, what's happening out there? Oh, oh we went to Bali, you know, and they wouldn't say much. They obviously realized that they'd unearthed the morning of the earth. This was gonna be something really big. And I think they realized the gravity of what they had actually explored mm. and the statement that they would make through that movie because, wow, that opened the floodgates big time. I mean, yeah. California's got Hawaii in, in their back door. Suddenly Australia's got Bali at their back door. And, you know, that, that, that the development of surfing 
by going to Bali and then the rest of Indonesia, mm. it's just been incredible. With you guys growing up as surfers in, in Australia, were you ever dreaming? You know, you've heard of Hawaii, you've heard of California, but at the time, were people thinking outside the box? Were people thinking, wow, I wonder where else in the world has world-class waves? Or was it just, not, was it just a passing thought because of what we had in our own backyard? Look, you're, you're a natural adventuresman, you know, yeah. you, you like adventure. So, of course, we're yeah. always thinking, where else can we go to find waves? I mean, I read how the surfers in the 60s, they couldn't wait to get in their car and drive down the coast. And, and Just explore the explore coastline. Explore the coastline and explore all these spots, you know, that weren't on the map. And, and that was the same for the rest of the world. We were aware of certain locations around the world, like Fiji, like Tahiti, mm. South America, uh, South Africa, Europe. But Indonesia, that was something new. And it was Russell Hughes, um, who was this incredible, enigmatic, charismatic character um, who, you know, he placed third in the 1968 world titles in Puerto Rico. He'd flown back from that event and just so happened to stop in Bali, stayed at the Sanua Hotel and Sanua was pumping. And then someone said, oh yeah, there's waves on the other side too. So he drove over and had a look at Kuda and, you know, he could see the reefs were pumping. And he was the one that tipped Elby Felsen. And so they're, they're landing in, in Bali, so 68, 69, 70, not a surfer. Not a, the Indonesians haven't seen people dancing on waves. Look, um, there was um, this Californian guy, Robert Koch, who'd started the first hotel at Kuda Beach just prior to World War Two. And he did bring over one of the Alaya uh, uh, boards, you know, the wooden boards, like yeah. what Chukahonomoko was surfing on, well, a scaled-down version, right? And so he was one of the first surfers in Bali. This is in the 1930s. Oh, my God. This, this right now, I'm thinking, and, and, and you and I, we've been in Indonesia together, and, and you've told me stories about Kuta being a dirt road, and I, I lived in Indonesia for six years, and... Right now, I'm thinking like the first hotel, even in Kuta. I'm thinking right now what this movie did. You know, it changed completely. Mm. You know, Bali. It became. It made it a, a surfing destination. Like wow. But you know, Bali had been on the map for some time. Surfers, for, for tourists. For tourists. For tourists. Yeah. I mean, Charlie Chaplin went there. Yeah. Like, you know, all the artists from Europe. So it was always gonna going to get there. out. It the, was sort of going to get out. And like mm. I said, Robert Koch, he ended up. When the Japanese arrived, you know, that they completely tore up Indonesia, didn't they? Everyone was, if you were Dutch, you were in big trouble. You'd get arrested and sent off to detention center. And, um, wow. Um, and if you were American, you didn't want to be around, right? Mm. So he just bailed. Once he got the warning that the Japanese are coming, he just grabbed whatever he had and he just got on the plane and flew out of there and left whatever he had behind, including the hotel at Kuta Beach. And what he did leave was his original surfboard, okay? And then it wasn't until Made Switra, who's sort of one of the Bali surfing legends, Mr. Padang Padang, he's incredible, Made Switra. You know, he's married to Holly Monkman now. They've got a kid and uh, he's just an incredible guy, fisherman and super goofy foot, just extraordinary barrel rider. He said to me, look, have a look at this board, because I went around to his gallery. He's an artist as well. And he had this board. I went, 
where did that come from? He said, oh, this is Robert Koch's board. My grandfather found it on the beach and he put it away knowing that one day this board would be really valuable. I said, wow, wait, you're not wrong on that. This is priceless. Mm. Well, the and also the probably the first surfboard in Indonesia, the first surfboard in Bali, the first surfboard mm. to ride those waves. Yeah, well, they were probably just riding Kuda shore break, but yeah, you know, it does, doesn't matter. That, that's yeah, that, that's as far as we know, he's the first white man. See, the Balinese, as you probably know, they, they were very scared of the ocean. The ocean was mm. taboo. There was a lot of myth and. Um, you, you know, a lot of, you know, what, what's the what's the word? You, they, they were concerned mm. that they could drown if they went in the ocean. Yeah. And, um, um, I know, yeah. The black magic. They got the, the black, black magic. magic there, yeah. Yeah, that's it's right. It's been cursed. It's, um, yeah, the demons are there. They've got a lot of spirits there. A lot of yeah. things to, yeah. I mean, you know, you know there's the what's queen, th- the queen that wears green. Yeah. It, it takes your soul. If you go out in the ocean with anything that's green, Mm. It's a green surfboard, a green pair of board shorts, a green surfboard. She'll uh, grab your soul, you know. So they're very superstitious. That was the mm. word I was looking for, and uh, that's real. That 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 myth, that culture. Mm. Yeah, and I, when I was living there, I had some wild, wild experiences up at my uncle's place in Jazri That was at the foothills of um, Agung, but mm. right on the beach. But it had a sacred burial ground next to it mm. and once a month they'll come dig up the bones and um, wash the bones but the kids and the spirits the kids that uh, my uncle looked after because he had, had an orphanage wouldn't go out at night completely terrified because they couldn't cross the rice field mm. next door because that's where the spirit where the spirits would came and often they'll come in screaming and everything that they'd seen a spirit and and then I started seeing him I mean I woke up one night with the uh, at the end of my bed and I just thought I was tripping there was like this big soldier kind of looking guy like eight foot tall with this thing on his head and just standing there and I uh, said the next day to everyone like oh I had the weirdest dream last night and everyone's like no that's this guy you know there's something that he had a name and mm. um, you didn't do your ceremony you know you got to do your ceremony otherwise they get angry and they come and they're reminding mm. you you've got to you know you do your ceremony mm. so when i was up whenever i was up in the village staying mm. at my uncle's place i'd always make sure i did my ceremonies Definitely. but it's um you know it's it's real to them it's so real you know it's the island of the gods That's i've right. got this story this uh belgium lady who was a medium landed she was a, a friend of a friend of mine and she was coming to stay with my friend and she landed had a completely freak out right at the airport jumped on the next plane and went back to europe and she said she's she landed there was just spirits everywhere you know she was a medium someone connected to that to that middle realm or that that world and um she had a complete freak out she couldn't handle it she'd never been anywhere like and she got on the next plane and left you know but each to their own everyone has their own individual experience Mm. but um it is a very sacred place and i i can imagine being in 19 1971 1968 1969 when these guys are first going there incredible yeah and um that footage that you sent me of morning on the earth where they're um the the lost footage and they're walking up the hills of uluwatu and you can see stephen kearney with his rice hat on and uh, it's just amazing and i remember walking into uh uluwatu like that where it would take you at least half an hour to walk in and uh you sort of needed a good pair of runners too, like Lopez used it as an exercise where, you know, when you drive outside at the, the outside road, 
it's like half an hour, you know, walk in. He'd run in with the joggers. That was his little exercise routine. <laughs> run to Uluwatu, yeah. climb down the cliff, paddle out. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And uh, and no Warungs. It would just be... Would it... There was just a couple of Warungs on the cliff face, you know. Um, but, you know, it was so dry out there at the Bukit, wasn't it? Yeah. And we'd all say, oh, gee, it'd be really good to have a place out here, but it's so dry. And they'd say, yeah, we don't have any water. And they were doing it really tough. You know, compared to living in town. But when you look at it now, I mean, what a transformation. I mean, I don't think it's a particularly great transformation, but um, the COVID thing really gave them, the Balinese, a chance to put everything in check and to go back and look at, you know, what tourism had actually done to the island and, and a chance to try and clean up you know, the pollution and the plastics and all the rest of it. And mm. they've been doing that over the last couple of years. So, you know, mm. unfortunately, that was the impact of it. And mm. I mean, you can't blame morning, morning of the Earth from that. It was sort of going to happen. Yeah. It was only a matter of time. What was it, what was it like when you first screened Morning of the Earth, when you were first looking at it and seeing this, uh, this new world, this new culture, these waves? Do you remember what it felt like inside you to see that? Well, it, it was not only the movie, the soundtrack was amazing too. And, um, and it was all Australian artists. Uh, normally the surf movies, you know, that have Carlos Santana and The mm. Doors and, you know, Jimi Hendrix or somebody. <laughs> and most of it wasn't used with copyright. But Elby Felsen did the right thing and he engaged all these Australian musicians to do a really unique um, soundtrack. Um, you know, Terry Hannigan is, is one of my good friends there and he's written the song, I'll Be Alright. It's right towards the end of the movie. It, it's just a, a beautiful ballad, um, almost like a folk song. And it, it, it's just timeless, like, like the movie. And mm. when I saw it and I saw what Bali looked like and those waves at Uluwai turn being a goofy foot, I couldn't wait to get there. I really, literally couldn't wait to get there. Wow. What'd you do? Well, <laughs> I kept, I kept working. So, you know, after 72, I mean, so much happened in that year. And, you know, eventually I came back to Australia. I was nearly going, I could have lived in Hawaii, could have stayed in Hawaii because I was enrolled at the college and I nearly had my green card. And, but I sort of realized that I was in somebody else's country mm. and, you know, a local Hawaiian said to me, well, why don't you go to college in your own country? And I said, well, maybe I will, you know. And, and I sort of knew that when Whitlam came in at the end of the year, I had to come home to see the change. I knew this was going to be a dramatic social reform change. And I wanted to be around to see that. And so I came back to the Gold Coast and I felt like, I felt like I'd sort of done everything I wanted to do in a way and I wanted to move on. I, I wanted to change myself as well. So my mum and I went to Byron Bay and um, that was a whole new experience for, for me. But it was a tough one and then, you know, I had to sort of work my way back from a really, you know, illustrious life on the Gold Coast to a survival life. So by, by about 1975, I'd saved up enough and I had friends in Bali and 
that's when I went to Bali in 75. And Wow, why was Byron like a survival life? Because it was just a small <laughs> country town at the time? Oh, a really small country town. I mean, but I loved it. I mean, you'd go to the Great Northern and, you know, everyone in the town would turn up. You'd, you'd know everybody. Anyone that lived in Byron would be there. And you go to the Top Pub, the same thing would happen up there. It was a really close-knit community. Although the police weren't real friendly, you know, the police mm. didn't really like surfers, particularly the sergeant, Don Sloan. And um, he had a fearsome reputation, didn't he? But he ended up, you know, he fell on the sword, as they say. Yeah. He was pretty corrupt. Yeah. And his corruption caught him out. And he got posted to Orange or Wagga Wagga. Poor old Don. And then he had a heart attack running around a park and that was the end of Don. And then there was... So... You know, my mum, she had a pretty funny sense of humour. She'd call um, Don Sloan the Sloan Ranger. You know, not yeah. the Lone Ranger, the Sloan yeah. Ranger. And then the, the number two was Sergeant Woodlands. So he got Woody Woody Pecker. It's, <laughs> it's Woody Woody Pecker. And then number three was a guy called Mel Gillette, Sergeant Mel Gillette. And he got called Razor Blades, you know, because of Gillette, Razor Blades. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. And they just couldn't wait to lock people up. You, you only had to look sideways. So there was that. But when we went surfing, I mean, in the winter, Lennox would be just pumping. You know what it's like in the winter. Mm. And you'd get up really early and get down there, you know, at dawn. And the waves were just smoking, went to Lennox. And you'd do this big session out at Lennox, you know, because it's pretty full on. And then go and have something to eat and then wait for the southeasterly to come through and then the pass would be offshore and pumping so everyone sort of knew each other and everyone would be surfing and it was a really close-knit surfing community and mm, i didn't didn't see any dramas in those days everyone was really happy to see each other and everybody was hooting everybody yeah that footage that you sent me of like you know you know, back in this day of everyone in the car park and everything, you know, I really didn't see too much difference with the cult, well, obviously with the, the time, but it was just boys hanging out down the beach. Like it was just yep. you and your mates hanging out and surfing. Yep. And it's the same as what I do with my mates. And it was like really cool to see, you know, it was just about going and surf with your mates and just have fun. Yeah. Well, when you're at that age, you're not exactly sure where you're going in life, right? Yeah. You, you're trying to work out what direction should I go in? What are my options? What's my career going to be? Or do I just don't give a fuck and just go surfing? Mm. And that was basically my strategy. In the end, if nothing else worked, I'd just go surfing and just let the, the, the cards fall into place. But when we got to California in 1972 for the World Surfing Championships, that was a huge cultural shock to all of us because we hadn't quite seen surfing and social movement at that level because they'd been protesting against Vietnam. They were, they were anti-established. They wow. were really full on. There's a, a program called Animal Kingdom. Mm. Okay, now originally it was an Australian movie, but the Americans have turned it into a series that's about... California with the surfing background and that was Animal Kingdom there it was such a shock to all of us to see how everything was and of course the police were gnarly as hell 
in San Diego, you know, if you looked like you were doing the wrong thing or they didn't like the look of you, they'd they'd uh, pick you up as well. Because this is the anti-establishment movement. Yeah. Well, I'm picturing it right now, you know, mm. being, you know, coming from Australia and going to Hawaii, then California, Australia, mm. like you're saying, the reform hadn't happened. Yeah. So it was like, you know, the draft was coming out. It was Vietnam. It mm. was, well, Australia's at war. So it's like I can, I've been, we've been seeing it here the last couple of years with the suppression of the society, you know. Like mm. I just saw it at Blues Fest, you know, the first Blues Fest in, in three years. And the, the first couple of days, the whole crowd you know, you got thousands and thousands of people watching a, I mean, watching the Living End. I was watching the Living End, and yeah. last time I saw them pre-COVID, mm. there was crowd surfing and um, and mosh pitting and everything. And next thing I see, and there's like, I don't even know how many thousands of people in there, and mm. no one moving. Well, Everyone yeah. just standing there, and, and um, I saw one guy start dancing and moving, and he got shut down. He actually got pushed and pushed back and told to calm down. And I was just sitting there thinking about the social like the suppression That's of right. where where we're at so now i'm thinking about you this is kind of happening happened in australia mm. what you guys have come out of next thing you've stood into california which is just full-on let go mm. just full-on that hot the hippie movements happen the um the change is happening you know the mm. reform is happening the yeah. anti-establishment and you guys that would have just been wild because it was like i'm guessing it's like suddenly no rules or people are anti-rules of people like not caring about the rules you know where like, bucking the establishment yeah. yeah absolutely and and they just they did it with so much passion and spirit we were like choir boys turning up we sort of looked radical we had long hair and beards but we we're nothing like them they'd been through it all they'd been through the hippie days and the summer of love in 1968 but by 72 it was rock and roll, you know, yeah. look out, raucous rock and roll at that. And one of the things also that sort of did us up at that World Surfing Championship was the, the design of the board that they were riding. And, you know, we were all sort of starting to go towards a modern style of progressive board, you know, um, almost mini gun shape. And comes um, another plane. And, uh, but the Californians, had started riding these kneeboard looking shapes called the twin fin fish swallowtail that had been designed by a kneeboard rider at San Diego called Steve List. And in particular, David Naweaver had jumped on one of these things. Is that because the waves in California are small and weak? Exactly. So they're, they're looking for like shorter, wider, fatter boards to get through the sections where... Get through the flat sections and, you know, go really fast and and do big roundhouses and mm. yeah just surf over really weak sections and you know, our boards were bogging whereas these boards were just flying they were like you know this <laughs> wow so the funny thing was that look Naweaver he was this he was like Geronimo you know he had this long black hair and he, he was like in the twilight of his career he'd been in all the world titles, you know, from 60, he, he, he was actually in the one in 1965 that Felipe won. But, you know, he was in the 66 one, which is expected to win on nose riding. But Nat came over and he was doing a completely different style of surfing based on innovation and manoeuvres, progressive surfing, and he won easily. And then 68, the board started to come down, you know, from the longboards, traditional Malibu shapes. They were still sort of a little bit in between. And um, 
you know, like Reno Avalero turned up, he was in that final and he had a seven foot six, which was considered quite small at the time. Whereas most of the people were on eight foot boards, you know. And the Weaver, you know, he was sort of on a, a gunnish looking board in 68. And then 1970, he came out here to Bells. And once again, he was probably on a six foot 10, something like Rolf Arnest would ride. Still surfing really great, but 72, this was his swan song. So he's riding a five foot four twin fin swallowtail fish. It just looks like a barn door, you know, shaped with a swallow and a couple of radical fins on the end. I mean, when I looked at it, I thought, What is that? What is that? But I knew exactly what it was. So I actually asked one of the local San Diegans, have you got a board like this? Because my board's just not working. Oh, and, and you so, so I, I borrowed a board that looked like a rubbish bin lid with a fin on it, you know. But it went great. It was like a knee board, like a knee board shape. It was almost like Michael Peterson's uh, Morning of the Earth shape, which was really patented off Peter Crawford's slab knee board. You know, round nose, square round tail. Uh, those square round tails are incredible for cutbacks, like Michael's famous cutback in Morning of the Earth. But these swallowtail things, they were even bigger. And they didn't look particularly nice, but they were working. And so, so un unfortunately for Nueva, that the San Diegans, they sort of took, um, you know, umbrage against Nueva for using that design without crediting their hero, Steve Liss. Because the, the, the kneeboarder that originally made that shape. So he, he, he was the guy that came up with the shape. So they, they think he's ripped him off. So he's in San Diego. He's got this this new fish-looking board. Yeah. And these other guys are like, hang on a second. That's not your design. And they yeah. think it's the knee borders. Basically, that's what it was. So mm. anyway, halfway through the event, Nueva's board gets stolen. And, you know, we heard that his board had been stolen. We thought, oh, you know, it's just somebody looting his board or what have you. And that, that sort of thing can happen if you leave your boards on top of the car. And he had this beautiful white jag i've sent you a photo of it mm. parked at oceanside there at san diego california and boards on top and somebody's just ripped his board off you know how, how many of us have lost our boards like that but on the final day michael peterson and i are sitting in the car park and we're looking out at ocean beach that's where the the last event was we started oceanside and then we went to ocean beach both beaches had piers you know they almost looked identical Anyway, there's something hanging from the pier. And at first, I'm thinking, has somebody been lynched? And then I looked close, no, it's a surfboard. I said, Michael, it's in half, and hold on, there's a sign on it. There's a crowbar holding this sign. And it says, good luck, Dave. And I thought, wow, we, that's how they treat their local heroes. What are they gonna do to us if we win this event? So we just could not believe it. Why would they do that to such a hero like David Nueva, not realising the backstory, and um, so anyway, Nueva just brushed it off so and, got, and got another twin fin, yeah. <laughs> another swallowtail twin fin, and so in the end, in the final, Jimmy Blair's, who'd also had a lightning bolt and a very progressive-looking board, he realised he wasn't going to beat Nueva on this twin fin swallowtail fish, so he he borrowed one from a local too that was actually smaller than David's. And they had this bloody fish battle, if you like, you know, to see who could go faster and longer. And, you know, back in those days, 
length of ride actually counted. And Jimmy's last wave in the final was longer than David's, and he pipped him, you know, pipped him at the post. Wow! So the Australians come through. So I'm just picturing now, you know, he's he's gone Hawaii, and you're on like the kind of mid. Oh, sorry, Hawaii came later. Oh, Hawaii came yeah, later. So this is in October before we get to Hawaii in November and December. Oh wow! So when you're the first going to California, suddenly you're up against these like mushy slow waves and you're looking mm. at these guys with completely different boards to what you guys have yeah boards you know more suited to that type of wave and they're, they're like almost like a foot shorter what did you feel what what did it feel like when you first got on one of those boards oh i loved it i you know because i'd actually had a board like this previously in 1970 and i had a twin fin like that that ken adler had made in 71 big round nose but it was a square tail mm. so i sort of knew how these boards can work really easy to turn but really good in small waves but you wouldn't ride them in waves of consequence you wouldn't ride them in barreling waves right but mm. then you know sort of been funny you see somebody like dave rasevich you know goes to lagundi bay and nias and rides one of those boards in like 10 to 12 foot barrels mm, and Lagundry is powerful too it's really known powerful. for its power yeah he was out well i interviewed him a couple of days ago but he was out lennox it was absolutely pumping uh, last monday you know double overhead and i saw russ to get this bomb and he's on a small twin fin and when he hit the lip... Still on the twin fin oh my god but yeah when he hit the lip and just did this powerful carve and I was thinking, like, I, I just remember thinking, like, there's no way I'd be able to do what he did without the tail sliding out. You know what I mean? Without that back fin holding in. And he just does this big, controlled... Big, controlled tail slide. And, yeah. And that, that was the beauty of that. And, you know, Naweeva could just do this beautiful roundhouse cutback. But Jimmy was a super adaptable surfer. I mean, he was from Hawaii. He could surf from 2 feet to 20 feet. Tenacious, you know. He might not have had the style of Naweeva... And maybe he wasn't as good as Nueva, but he was a fierce competitor and he saw the edge. And it, it was a great win. But that event came at a cost to him and to the organisers. And it got written off as the last world amateur event that it was badly organised. It owed money. It was held in terrible waves. It just got swept under the carpet, including that you know, so twin cool. tin twin fins swallowtail fish if i can get it out exactly you know and that's where that board was established and you know it wasn't until i think about 74 when reno came out reno had his own version of that when he was surfing in uh, the code contest and at bells and then by 76 mark richards saw reno and dick brewer and they developed that fly swallowtail twin fin mm. for mark richards who then went on to win four world titles on that board, you know. So there was a bit of an evolutionary yeah. change along the way from the original big fat fish to what would become this finely tuned twin fin that would uh, put everyone out of business, uh, thanks to MR. And, of course, that motivated Simon Anderson then to think, how can I beat him? Um, okay, I'll come up with three fins. I'll put three fins on, you know. And Simon did that in 81 and... Um, you know, MO won his last um, world title in 82 and, and, and it was over, you know. like So it was it? like the, the single fin to the to the fish. The, the, and that fish, that story you just said, and, you know, the snap board on the pier, mm. 
that is the evolution and where the fish that we see everyone surfing today that you see every shaper making one of you know when you're at the pass you know down in byron bay half the lineups on one exactly and it all stemmed from 1972 1972 and, uh, that knee bod rider steve liss's design and uh the world champs you know the, jumped, yeah. jumped on that design and went first and second and i got really excited about this so i thought with Legends of Surf 72 exhibition, I'm going to recreate this board, a replica of it. So through the Surf Lab at the Surfboard Warehouse, we've been able to recreate this board. It'll be in the exhibition. And then we're going to auction it off, Aaron, for our charity of choice, which is Cancer Council Queensland. I mean, we're all getting fried by the sun. So the board will remain in the exhibition, but uh, at some point we'll auction it off. and. Uh, it's it's looking really good. It's getting glass today, so I'm getting really excited about that. And it's got wooden fins, and it's five foot four, and wow, wow it looks super good. Yeah, it's it's interesting too, because back in back in that day, you know, you guys were, you know, pioneering surfing of what surfing is today. So you guys are just making your own boards and playing with them, trying different shapes. Like, what was that like? Because I'm guessing you made your own boards at some stage. No, I never did. And really? I, I, and I was absolutely hopeless at manual skills. I mean, oh. I, I couldn't even cut a straight line with a saw. I, I was absolutely hopeless. But I... just got a static going through the... Oh, that's all right. Mm, a little bit of static? Just come out of nowhere? Interesting. I wonder, wonder where that's come from. Okay, it's, it's, it's just gone. Yeah, so... So, so 1972... You know this this year that has shaped. You know it's morning of the earth. It's opened up Bali. It's it's shown mm. Uluwatu. You know one mm. of the best left-handers in the world. Yeah. You know it's um. You know the Australians have dominated over in Hawaii. The Australians have um dominated in California. The fish this fish surfboard <laughs> shape. They has didn't been dominate born. in California. Only PT got third. Only PT. I got six. I, I got beaten in a rapid charge with uh, PT and Mike Purpose for a shot in the final. It was really close, but that's what happens, you know. So I was sort of happy, you know, I got six overall, which was six in the world in 1972. But my boards come from Dick Van Strollen, and he asked me, you know, if I'd made boards. I mean, my first boards were from Laurie Honnessy, who was quite a legend here on the Gold Coast. And... Tony Dempsey was the shaper and I just left it to the experts but when Dick Van Strollen arrived from the northern beaches of Sydney around about 1969 he was designing boards to ride on the points in the barrels and there were these really advanced pintails where there are other boards that were like Michael Peterson's um, slab design or you know the really chunky models and Dick's was far more um, finely tuned uh, for mm. better waves and so I, I was really happy to be part of his stable and he was supplying me with boards and he supplied me with some great boards to go to Hawaii. Mm. And um, which one's that one? Oh, that's Jetstar. Jet there you go. There's <laughs> Jetstar. Yeah, there's, there's Alan hanging off the back. G'day, Alan. Yeah. How did um, you guys, how did Surfing Australia have... How did the Australian team, how did you as a professional surfer in 1972 make money? How did it have money in the industry? Oh, there was no money. Okay. So, so how did you get to Hawaii? How did you get to California? Well, just through, you know, our own funding. We, we were all self-funded in one way or another. The manufacturers were very supportive of the competitors. They would supply boards and in some cases 
would um, supply some money. There were no Billabongs, Quicksilver or Rip Curl now, n not at the level that they became. Um, just to quantify that, Quicksilver and Rip Curl started in about 1969 and Billabong started in 73, right? So it was really, it really wasn't until the start of the 80s that those guys really became, you know, big corporate companies and they had the money to offer surface to become professional. But like for instance, Robert Bartholomew, the Miami High School supported him and did fundraisers for him to go to California. I was just really lucky that my mum supported me and <laughs> she made this giant sacrifice by renting uh, our house at Mermaid Beach and she moved into a caravan or something and so we had this income so she was able to send me money and in those days a hundred dollars Australian was 200 US oh that was really good wasn't it so <laughs> um so I was able to buy you know a hundred dollar bomb car so I could drive around Kauai on it the thing was that when we got to California we just had to get there somehow mm. the the national champs were supposed to be given their airfares and even to the point of leaving that still hadn't been confirmed because they were really struggling to fund the event, the organisers in California. And at one stage, Stan Cooper, who was the president of the ASA at the time, and he was the team manager, was threatening not to send the team over there unless we could get a guarantee that one, that the national champion would be reimbursed, that um, we had accommodation and that there would be some proviso for food, you know. And they basically said, don't worry, Stan, just get over here, we'll, we'll sort it out. And um, so when we turned up, we were sent to this place called the Travelodge. And ironically, it was an Australian company that was involved with Travelodge in this brand new hotel in San Diego Harbour. Wow, it looked really impressive. So all the surfers turned up. Of memory, there was nearly between 20 and 30 countries had, that were represented at that World Surfing Championships. You know, now they've got 100 uh, countries that are affiliated with the ISA, which now hosts the Olympics. But um, all the teams turned up and everybody else as well. So the, the, the word got out that the surface of it turned up at the Travelodge, that's where the party is. <laughs> so the hotel turned into this raucous party venue every day and night there was something going on and the groupies and the rock and rollers and the drug deals were going on it, it was it was chaos you know this is not the sort of atmosphere or the environment for a serious training for a team Athlete. to do well. yeah exactly so there are a lot of big distractions going on and i mean mark richards he was the baby of the team he was only 15 years of age I could just see the shock on his face. What is going on here? And he was on the way up. I mean, at that particular time, he was like runner-up to Simon Anderson in the junior. Simon Anderson had been the 1971 and 72 Australian junior champion with mm. um, Mark Richards then being runner-up in uh, 1972. So you could see he had incredible potential. Um, but... Yeah, we were, we were all like lambs to the slaughter in a way. I'd, I'd been to Hawaii previously, so I sort of knew what the American culture was like. 
and I was well read on the politics. And I, I sort of got off on the chaos. Mm. I, I thrived on the chaos. I loved it. And so did MP. But I think uh, along the way, MP sort of wasn't quite sure what was going on either. And, you know, I believe that he got a really good tube ride in one of his heats. I didn't see it. And they didn't know how to judge it. So they, he didn't come out or something. So they just, they wrote him off. And he, he went out also in the earlier rounds. He was expected to do really well there. I mean, wow. he, he, he should have been able to win it. And if he had have been on his morning of the earth board, I'm sure that he would have won it. So there was there was a lot of um what was it like being an australian there at that hotel in 1972 you know with the australian Mm. accent being an australian team was it just so foreign to the americans at the time yeah and look the staff were all new too so they were all like babes in the woods so everybody was a bit out of sorts and yeah they loved the aussie accent and there was one time when Rod Brooks got pulled over by the police with a whole lot of Australians in the car. And they had these big, like, you know, Studebaker cars that they'd supplied for, to, um, you know, transport the surface to the beach because where the hotel was was quite away from the beach. And so, you know, Rod was like a... Um, he was a reserve, but he became, like, deputy manager. So he'd, he'd transport the surface around and... You know, he had everybody hanging out of the car and they're all sort of carrying on. And then the police saw them and pulled them over. And as soon as Rod started talking, they were oh, you're Australian, are you? you know, and then, uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm not, that, I'm not from around here. <laughs> yeah, you know, they had the guns pulled and everything and Rod had never experienced anything like that before. And the police realised that, you know, these guys uh, were actually over there to compete and they'd let Rod go. But... That, for Rod, it was a scary experience. He, even to this day, he said he's never had a gun pulled on him by the police. So this is a whole new thing. And, you know, at that time, the police were gnarly. And, and I heard how there were certain police that had been to the Korean War, hated communists or anyone that was anti-war or anti-established. So if you looked like you were a radical and the surface looked super radical, they'd yeah. want to arrest you. Yeah. That's how it was. We sort of didn't quite realise that. It hadn't got that bad here. We had some big moratorium protests against the war, you know, in the major cities. But by this stage in America, these protests were happening everywhere. So, and people were getting arrested all over the place. So it hadn't quite got to that level in Australia. So that was another part of the social, cultural change that we definitely weren't used to. And the funny thing was, I remember when we checked into the hotel, I thought, wow, this is a pretty flash hotel. I'm liking this one, nice pool, and, you know, we've got a nice room. They're really squatty, only room, you know, like yeah. three beds. MP, myself and PT shared a room. <clears throat> and um, after a few days, PT said, no, I'm checking out of this room. This is a party room. I'm, I'm going to swap with Rabbit. And Rabbit was all too eager to join us. And <laughs> PT went over to another room. It was probably you know, good strategy on, on PT's part, but, you know, he, he's sort of called our room the party room. But the fact was the whole ho- hotel was, was a party, a party room, room, you know. Um, and people that had been staying there, business people, as soon as the welcome sign went out, welcome the 1972 surfers for the World Surfing Championships, all those business people checked out. So basically the surfers took over the hotel <laughs> and all the groupies and the rest of the entourage moved in. 
that's what it was like. It was crazy, wasn't it? Absolutely crazy. How did you explain that in the time when you come back to Australia? You know, you come back and try to explain what was happening over there. You know, because I didn't come straight back uh, after that. You know, I had a couple of... I went up to Santa Barbara and funnily enough, Albie Felsen was up there and he was making his second movie on uh, George Greeno. George uh, Greeno. Crystal Voyager. And... um, I thought, wow, he's, he's on a roll, you know, he's pumped out on the earth, now he's on this one, this will be good. And it was, it was a good movie. It certainly wasn't a Morning of the Earth movie, but, you know, anything with George in it's always going to be good. And it, that movie was about how George made the Crystal Voyager, his boat, out of scrap metal. Because mm. he was so innovative, George, you know. Um, and then I, I did get to surf the ranch up at uh, Hope Ranch, you know. Yeah, just north, north of Santa Barbara. Santa, Santa Barbara, yeah, that was a big deal. And then I thought, I can't wait to go back to Hawaii because that's where I was living. And I had to go back to college, you know, and, uh, and put in a few classes to let them know I was still there. The Hawaiians at the college, they were really impressed when I turned up with my World Championship board shorts with the badge. They uh, said, wow, where have you been? And I explained it to them and... Oh, you've no, got the badge I, here I, right yeah. now. And so the badge that was on it wow. was actually certified by the Australian government and it was the first time an Australian surfing team had a Australian government certified badge. You know, you, you can't just make these up. Yeah. You have to have approval for it. So when they saw that, they went, wow, okay, um, that's really impressive. And I said, oh, yeah, it's okay. I... I, I was sort of a bit disappointed that I, I had a crack, you know. Yeah. I could have won a world title and there was all of that. But I, it was just, you know, to me, you know, you win, lose or draw, you, you've got to just carry on with what happens next. So what was in my mind then was going to the North Shore and seeing if I could get up to that level of the Hawaiians and surf those waves with that sort of confidence. And I, I've... I think I sent you a photo of this wave at Pipeline, and I'll send it to you. But, you know, there's one day where I told myself, I, I want to surf the biggest wave I've ever surfed, and out of Pipeline, I'm going to paddle out at outside pipe. And this day was like, I don't know, 10 to 15 feet. And I could see it was getting bigger as the tide went out, and it was starting to break on the outer reefs. And I kept watching it and, you know, I was staying at back door and I was watching it and, oh, it was just radical, you know, some of the waves. And I said, do I really want to do this? And I'm saying, yes, yes, you got to do it. This, this is your chance, you know, this is your shot to go out of pipeline. And um, so, you know, about three or four o'clock, you know, I go down there and I've got this Mike Diffender for an eight foot four, beautiful board. And... I'm not sure where to quite paddle out. And Dick Earl turns up. And Dick Earl had been living in Hawaii at that time. This is before Dick made movies with Jack McCoy. He'd been working with Randy Rarick, in fact, in the surfing industry. He used to sand the fins. And, you know, he had a really good spot. He was taking photos, though. And he's got photos of this era. Anyway, he said to me, the ta- look, where, where you take off, you need to paddle straight out in front. If you paddle too far down the beach, you know, towards, um, you Rockies. know, Pupakea, Rockies, yeah, you'll get caught in the sweep, you know. You need to be just a little bit left of the takeoff, paddle straight out, and then when the sweep gets you, 
just try and paddle around that last section and then you're out the back. So we both jumped in and we're just paddling and the white water's coming and I'm, I'm just paddling like no tomorrow and then I don't know what happened. I, I just, I got a break. I don't know what happened to Dick and I saw the break and I just went around and suddenly I'm out there in but, deep, deep water. And he didn't, he's in, he's inside. He's, I never saw him after that, you know, I don't know what happened. And, you know, because it was gnarly. Were you even more scared now that suddenly you're out there, he's not with you? You know, like when you lose someone on the on the way, you're like, oh, no, it's just me now. Yeah, I would have loved it if he had been with me. Mm. But then I went, well, this is it. You're on a mission. This is you now. You, you, you're dependent on you and you only. Wow, you've, you've come here to do something. Exactly, you know. And it's already breaking on the second and the third reef, you know. <laughs> I mean, when they had the pipeline event this year, that there was this particular day where it actually did break on the third reef. I've got photos of it mm-hmm. <laughs> from the telecast. I went, that's what it was like the day I, I went out there. Because I figured I'm going to go way out the back and catch one of those outside bombs and then ride right. it as far as I can to the inside. And, and then pull in, yeah, like roll, in. roll into it. Yeah. So anyway, I sat out there for about 45 minutes. and Were you looked, scared? Yeah, I was scared. And I was looking at waves, and you'd see the waves breaking on the out on the outer outside reefs, you know. And that'd give you an indication of when the sets were coming through, you know. So I let a couple of waves go through just to get my takeoff, get my bearings. Meanwhile, everyone else is inside, you know. They're sitting on first reef, and I'm just out there waiting, waiting. And then suddenly, I can see the three wave set. You know, I've seen it from way outside on the outer reefs. And so I've let the first one go through. Like, I've actually paddled for it a little bit just to see, you know, what it'd be like. But I know I'm not going to take it. I've waited for the second one. You know, because normally the second wave of set's always a better way. The second wave of the set, it's lined up all the way. Like, it's it's a big, mm. long swell. I've gone, fuck, this is it. Okay, so I just started paddling. And when you're that far out and on a big board, it's not that hard to paddle into pipe. You're in deep water. But once I got on the wave, then it was like all the water just went from the shoreline, just started sucking back out into this wave, building the wave, and then it got steeper and steeper and steeper until I'm just dropping down the face and my rails are rocking and I'm thinking, I'm gonna fall off. I can't wipe out on this. I will drown on this wave if I wipe out. And I just held the the inside rail, you know, and, and I'm like right down trying to push down on that inside rail. And then I've come around the bottom and there's this is huge wave, right? Like I didn't get in the barrel, but it's like, it was like a 24 wave in the end. And I've sort of negotiated the section. I'm sort of just under the lip and I'm going for the inside. And then the last part comes around, you know, the close out section where mm. you've got a wave that big. And so that was the time to exit out, you know. And meanwhile, everyone that's sitting inside, they're all bailing off their boards. Yeah, because they've it's all big, been the clean-up set. It's a clean-up set, and they've all been caught inside. Yeah, Armstrong, Mike Armstrong was that his name? I think he was one of the the pipe champs that was over there. He used to hang out with Lopez. He saw that wave and. And when I got off the wave and, you know, it was like, you know, the bungee jump bail out at the mm. end, you know, like a white five board goes one way and the body goes the other. And I went, fuck, I made it, you know, I survived. And I got back on the board and I paddled out. 
And he went, wow, that was impressive. And I thought, wow, that really means something, you know, when one of the locals yeah. says that. And it was like climbing Everest for me, Aaron. Yeah. And then after that, everything paled in insignificance. It didn't matter that I didn't win a world title or, or I didn't, you know, win a contest in Hawaii. For me, that, that was a pinnacle. That was your moment. That, that was my moment. So I, I sort of reached this peak. And, you know, the funny thing was, I'd, I'd showed the photos to everyone. Bernie Baker took all these photos, and but he wouldn't give me a copy because he said Surfer Magazine. And I just said, oh, okay. And um, those they, they never ran it, and the photos got lost. And you know, many years later, he said, oh, what about that sequence I took of you? And I said, yeah, that was good. And I thought, oh, well, you know, because you can't hold on to everything in this life, you know. Mm. Like that. <clears throat> Then um, Megan was looking through Steve Wilkins' um, uh, website. He was one of the top photographers in the time. And she found a photo of me that he'd take at back door, you know, on a right-hander. And I'm looking through it, and then I've seen the shot, and it's got unidentified Saturday afternoon, da-da-da-da-da. I'm going, that's the wave. I couldn't believe it. That's right? the one you've always... Always yeah. wanted to, you know, have some copy of it. So I, I got in touch with him in the last month and I said, look, it's been a while since I've seen you. Um, be really great if you can support us with some photos. Cause he had some good photos of Paul Nielsen at sunset um, that we could use in the exhibition. But I said, I've got to ask you about this shot. I swear this is me. And then, so he sends me a copy and it's like, you know, it's bigger high res so I can see oh my god that's me and um, so that'll be in the exhibition too <laughs> my hero shot you know Paul's got plenty of hero shots but um, that just you know it's a, a, it's a moment in time and well that's it for you it's like a big not just a moment in time it's a big moment in your life it's the pinnacle yeah. that is your Everest yeah. that's the moment where you reached your your limit where you push yourself through all your fear where you went out there and said you know what I'm going for it that's right. I'm doing it and you made it and made it and survived it yeah because mm. it was so big that way if I could have drowned I could have anything could have gone wrong I mean people die at Pipeline mm. and yeah I, I saw Dapper and <clears throat> I said to Dapper, oh, you did so well, mate, third in the Smirnoff, you've been ripping, you've got a professional career in front. He said, no, I'm, I'm walking away, that's it. I said, what? And he said, yeah, I've, I've, I've done as well as I can, that, that third at, at Holly Eva in the Smirnoff, never going to do better than that. I said, yeah, you, you're only just stunning, you're only 20. He goes, no, when I go home, I'm going to go back to footy. <laughs> and he went back to rugby league and he played for a while and then he became a coach. He never went back to surfing. I could never quite understand why he did that, but then I sort of could, that he didn't really want to turn into a professional surfer. And I had the same mixed thoughts. I didn't really want to be a professional surfer too. I didn't want to be, you know, standing in front of cameras and here I am and trying to be a champ at every event. I mean, that sort of stuff can really affect you. It really affected Michael Peterson. He said to me in the end that, Andrew, I just couldn't keep it up. I couldn't keep going. I said, it's okay, Michael, I understand, you know. Mm. You know, because that's the thing. You, at, at some point, you're going to get beaten or, you know, someone else better is going to come along. You, you've got to know when to step off. And Plus the, the expectation on you. The but unless you're Kelly Slater when 
mate, don't retire. Just keep going at 50. Why not 51? You know, like mm. that guy is an absolute exception. This has been his life. And, you know, <clears throat> but yeah, that that, uh, that really surprised me when Dapper walked away from it. And, and I basically sort of walked away from it too. But I still had one foot in the water and one foot out, you know, because I thought, look, there's so many things to learn in life. There were so many things that I needed to learn. And, and I was a bit worried if I sort of fo followed a professional surfing career, I was only going to see one side of life. Mm. And, um, but I, I still like competing too. Mm. And, what, what do you feel that, that that year, that pinnacle year of 1972, how do you feel that changed surfing? forever it, it definitely pushed it to the next level and when um i put up a photo of dapper on my facebook page and simon anson came in and simon said when we saw that dapper could get third because you know he, simon's talking from the north narrabeen guys like cole smith anthony hardwick mark warren that it all gave terry fitzgerald it all gave them hope that they could make it too that mm. if Dapper can do it, we can do it, you know. And obviously Mark Richards as well, and obviously PT. It all gave them hope that they could make a career out of professional surfing, and, and they really did, you know. Terry Fitzgerald, of course, created the hot buttered surfboards, and they're incredibly famous, you know. Brothers Nielsen had an incredible label, you know. But everything has its time, doesn't it? Everything mm. has its uh, moment. You know, Andy Wall, what's he say? You know, everyone gets their five minutes of fame. But, but, but nothing stays the same. It all changes. But then some things don't change. And what's old is new again. And when you look at 1972, it's not that sort of different in a way that what people are going through there and how they're adapting to life is how we've got to adapt that obviously technology and mm. you know the internet and everything has changed everything and you know now we've got the threat of climate change we've got the the, the threat of wars which is really scary mm. uh, nuclear war um so it, it couldn't be more interesting now to learn from that period of when we had it all and we we're all blessed yeah. to how do we protect it now and how do we make the world a better place and I think for me that that was the ultimate all those experiences that mm. I learned you know I learned about sexism I learned about colonialism I learned about politics all of those uh, theories you know in academia mm. in 1972 some at the college and just experiences and that, and, oh here's a virgin again of a virgin plane but yeah um, so many learning experiences and so and like I said so many things happened um, that, that really you know really did help mm. everyone to develop what direction they were going to take next yeah it was really interesting speaking with David Rastovich the other day just about the, our culture of surfing and you know the culture that we're in and it kind of made me think of our responsibility to activism our responsibility to the natural world of like you know protecting these beautiful places and the and the ocean that we play in and it kind of like really he really connected me to that and just with everything all around the the, the world and um really made me look at the surfing community and the power that it can have you know and I was, I was i was just thinking about 
just like what he does and what he said the other day, even with when the floods happened in northern New South Wales, mm. like me and all my mates, is suddenly we became action men. Just suddenly all jumped in and we're just going for it, you know, helping out and doing what we could. And he was saying, like, you know, surfers are so adaptable. You know what I mean? They're, they're in the elements, they're in the ocean. And suddenly with things like that, he said, that was it right there. We all just jumped in and just got in and, and did it. It really just made me think about our Amazing. community. Yeah. yeah. How do you see, um, you know, growing up in the, in the surf community and the surf culture and watching it change? How do you feel about the surf culture now? Well, the surf culture is really rich, isn't it? It's so diverse. Mm. There's so many people surfing, which is, you know... A, a good bit and of, a bad thing. <laughs> a good and a bad thing. I mean, it might be good for making more surfboards, and but then, you know, the spots are getting overcrowded. And, um, for instance, with Gold Coast World Surfing Reserve, we're linked in with a surf management plan with City of Gold Coast. And they've just come up with this really cool animation, The Good Surfer and surf etiquette mm. and what to do and what not to do and done in an animation style. It's going to be released when the Challenger series is on at Snapper Rocks, you know, because mm. that's the first big Challenger event that's kicking off at Snapper yeah. uh, next month. So, you know, to be able to have something like that to put out rather than signs all over the mm. place, don't do this, don't do that. It's um, spreading that awareness of what's a cool thing to do in the water how to share waves not not snake people and yeah. paddle in front of them and, and what a lot of people don't understand and my, my girlfriend said this to me the other day she's like oh she doesn't like out surfing because of the you know the the um hierarchy and i was like well it's not really that it was just it's just more it's dangerous when you don't play the game it's like we all prescribe to a certain kind of set of rules that keep us all safe and the next thing if you take off on a wave and a guy drops in on you and his board comes flying at your head it's dangerous and then I, even, like, I had a moment out here last week with that last well at Crumb and Alley where it was washing behind the rock quite hard and the, the main peak where everyone was sitting was, you know, that, that wide section because the water was washing so so hard behind it. And, and you know the alley, when you take off behind the rock, you've got to take off and deal with that backwash and then stick high and make that first section and then you can get an amazing barrel. You know, you've got to make it past the, the, the rocks and you've got to navigate the backwash and everything. And if anyone paddles on that shoulder or crumbles that lip, it wrecks the wave that you've just worked so hard for. Anyway, I, um, I jumped out behind the rock and I was the only one out there. The next crowd was down and I sat there for about half an hour just working and paddling and paddling and paddling, you know, against the, against the current there. And other people were jumping out and no one could paddle against it. Like I just kind of, I kind of had it stuck in my mind that I've done it, I've at least got to get one. You know what I mean? I'm out there, just paddle against the rip until, until a wave comes. Other people jumped out and, and not necessarily gave up. It was just so hard. They went, okay, I'm going down to that next peak. A wave finally came. And I was like, here we go, what I've been working for. And I paddle for and I see this guy on the next peak down the line, you know, 30, 40 meters down, start paddling. And he's looking at me and I was like, oi, mate, oi, 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 I've got it, I've got it. And I've taken off and I've started racing. And this guy's just looked at me and taken off anyway. And next thing I'm racing and next thing I'm standing on this beautiful wave behind this other dude. Um, and then his whitewash just wrecks the wave and then tumbles me over and then I come up and he falls off anyway. And I come up and he looked at me and went, oh, sorry about that. And I was so infuriated and frustrated that I've worked so hard for something. Mm. And now I'm down the line in the rip at the alley and it's going to be mm. such a hard paddle back out to where I was. And I'd worked so hard for 
it that I felt like I deserved it. And then this guy, through his own like kind of selfishness, just took it off me. Mm. And um, but at least he apologised. Yeah, at least he apologised. But the thing was, I did for me. I, I saw the um, he. It wasn't a genuine apology because he knew he was looking at me the whole time. And then he was like, oh, sorry, mate. You know what I mean? And I was like, <laughs> but, uh, but that frustration that I had didn't mm. need to have. Yeah. If we were all playing the game, you know, it was just like. Well, that's know. what the good surf is about. Yeah. The surf animation clip. It, it's really cool. And Scott Gillies, he's a former president of Surfing Queensland. He was on our original committee with Gold Coast World Surfing Reserve. He was tasked to put this all together and... It's very entertaining, but it's it really, you know, the message is succinct. You you can't miss a message, and mm. makes you think about sharing the waves and doing the right thing, and spreading the awareness, because there's no way of controlling it. You don't want to send out, you know, thugs. lifeguards <laughs> yeah. and thugs and water police to patrol. Mm. But so if everybody can do the right thing and and play it safe and enjoy it, it'll be a whole lot better. Mm. I mean, you're always going to have those dynamics aren't you yeah so but that that's that's a good example of what can be done and with surf culture with legends of surf 72 this was what i really wanted to push that that whole experience of surf culture that's what legends of surf 72 is all about the surf culture of 72 and how it relates 50 years later we're in a 50th anniversary and you know morning is the earth as well um Justin Mish, this guy who took on the mission of remastering Morning of the Earth over the last two and a half years while COVID was on, has done an amazing job of remastering it. And he's also been able to acquire some footage, lost reels, that weren't used in the original movie. So he's done a little short feature as well that goes with that. And they're going to be screening Morning of the Earth on Sunday the 1st of May up on top of Kira Hill. If it's raining, they can go inside, you know, the old Cullingata uh, State School buildings up on top of Kira Hill. So, yeah, that's that's going to be really good. And that, that's part of the Flotsam Festival. They're kicking off on Sunday, the 1st of May. So Legends of Surf, we start on Friday the 29th of April at Ridges Gold Coast Airport Hotel. It's free. It's on there from Friday through to Wednesday the 4th. And then we go to the QT Hotel at Surface Paradise from Friday the 6th, Saturday the 7th and Sunday the 8th, <laughs> that's Mother's Day, um, to do a second exhibition up there. And that will be in line with Surfing Australia's Hall of Fame Awards on the Saturday night, the 7th of May. And the connection with Legends of Surf 72 is that it is a 50th anniversary celebration of that legendary 1972 Australian team. 14 of which of the 20 that went to California have since been inducted into the Surfing Australia Hall of Fame, which, you know, it's, it hasn't happened since that in any other Australian team. 14 of those people oh, yeah. have gone on to be, you know, household names and legends and incredibly successful. Wow, the era, the era that you came from. And that, that was sort of the connection. Yeah, that's right. So, so this is all happening here in the next few weeks. And also yeah. we've got that um, the big event on it. It's not the Quickie Pro anymore. No, it's called the Challenger Series. I'm not sure, I'm not sure who's sponsoring it. But um, yeah, it's no longer the Quicksilver Pro. Mm. But it, it's interesting that you've mentioned that because um, we're making a big announcement next Wednesday. Uh, my, my new job is the PR publisher for the Surfboard Warehouse. 
we've just launched the S-Lab experience, S-Lab surfboards. In other words, anyone that would like to make their own board will be taken through the process of doing that at a cost, of course, with professional supervision and can create their own board. Like you asked me, had I made any boards? No, I haven't. But I've already done this twin fin um, going through the process of the S-Lab experience, which, you know, is really satisfying. It's going to be really great to see the end result. Um, wow. So anyway, next Wednesday, we've got this announcement with Pauline Mensah. All right, she was the 1993 World Women's Champion. Pauline lives at Brunswick Heads now, a Bondi legend. She's going down to Bondi this weekend there, unveiling this inc incredible mural of her on the boardwalk there on the second ramp, I think it is, at Bondi. And um, I think they're eventually going to build a statue of Pauline down at Bondi too. Um, she's so amazing, you know, she won 20 World Tour victories and she's in that movie Girls Can't Surf which was all about the marginalisation of women in surfing and the raw deal that they were given. Mm. Um, so we're going to be showing that on Wednesday at Miami The Store. Um, it's in Christine Avenue. But we're also, we're going to be doing giveaways and but we're going to be making this really important announcement where Pauline's going to be patron of the Queer Silver Pro that is being planned for the Queen's birthday weekend and it's going to be the first LGBT surfing event, one day event on Monday the 3rd of October. Wow. You've heard it first here on Diaries of the Wild Ones <laughs> and I couldn't think of a better format to announce that. Wow. Well, in Australia, How exciting. Australia's never done anything like this before in the surfing community. Not that I'm aware of or they haven't said too much about it. So we're going out for a one day full on gay pride expression session. Uh, hopefully at Rainbow Bay. We've got to get a permit to do this from City of Gold Coast, but that's our plan and we'll be making that announcement with Pauline and the host club, which is Surfers Witches, yeah. which is an LGBT board riders club. Um, so this is a really exciting um, project and yeah, I can't wait to see this. Wow. All come, come I was just together. I was just thinking in in 1972 you were shaping um, you know a, a surfing culture. You know you're helping sh shape it, and throughout your whole surfing career, and you're still doing it today. You know you're still helping everyone come together, and still helping everyone enjoy the ocean together, and the waves together, and and um, and Mother Nature. So it's uh, it's yeah. really cool to see that 50 years later you're still you're still right on the scene Andy yeah well I've, I've learned so much over that period and you know I started surfing in 1962 that's 60 years right so by 1972 that was the, the the breakthrough year and you know I learned from all of them I learned from MP I learned from PT PT was just incredible at promoting stuff and and he was so articulate and, and intelligent as was Rabbit Rabbit sort of had the best of both worlds from PT and MP. Um, you know, Simon Anderson, Terry Fitzgerald, Wicker, um, geez, Mark Warren, he really helped me with surf reports in the 80s. You know, he's a good friend of Dapper's. Mm. Um, Paul Nielsen, the brothers Nielsen, I grew up with them in the Wind and Sea Club. You know, I've learned from all of these guys and the women, the women thing, you know, 
I was always wondering why isn't there a stronger presence and it's so good to see now that that whole thing has turned around where you've got Pauline with Asian origin, you know, gay, declared, pray, proud gay surfer mm. coming out and now getting support. Whereas yeah. once upon a time, she would have been an outcast for her views and her stance. Mm. And so that's the different world we're in. Like, so people really admire and respect people that do get up and stand up for what they believe in. And one of the reasons why David Rasevich is so relevant because of the things mm. that he has done. He could have been a world professional surfer too if he wanted to, but I knew that he agonized with it. You know, he saw the bigger picture and he loves the surf culture and he wanted to find the, the, the role that would help him you know, develop not only himself but everyone else around him, mm. and he found that. Yeah, it was um, it was quite deep talking to him. <laughs> oh, I really, he really, uh, and then he threw it around me at the end. That you know, I'm going to put it out as I think as my hundredth episode, but he threw it around at me at the end, and he took me off guard. Where he started interviewing me, of course, but it was so deep, and he just, um, you know, he really thinks, he really thinks about the bigger p- picture, and he really comes from his heart space. And, um, you know, and his, yeah, he just, he loves, he loves what he does. He loves his ocean. He loves the ocean. I mean, he loves mother nature and, and, and so do we all, but it's just nice to have those people that help connect us to it, you know? So I was just thinking about this S lab experience. Um, yeah, I was just thinking for, for people out there, just, I was just thinking for my own self, my first ever surfboard that I that I have it's still at home at mum's place and I love surfing it but it's I just I'm too protective of it because it's this Malula bar shapes from from the 80s <laughs> it's a it's um it's like a pintail three fin pintail but it's like five eight and three inches thick and it is amazing to surf especially wow. at a wave like Crescent Who Head. That? I have no idea who she it was. Okay. It's Malula Bar shapes. It says on it, but I, I've always I was going to send it to Andrew Mooney and yep. Serpent Sleds and say, hey, what can you do with this? Or, or talk to Eden at Dead Kooks and yep. and you know talk to a couple of mates and see what they think. But that's something I just realised. It's my first surfboard. I can actually go shape it. You know, I can come in and do that experience. We'd love I, you to, and you know, you could document the whole thing. Mm-hmm. You know, from the foam blank to when it goes in the cutting room, the 3D technology to design it right you do that in the cutting room then it goes into the shaping room where you finish off the shape you know to make sure it's the shape that you want and then of course it goes to the glassing and the sanding and finishing off so you get um, to have that connection with your own board but yeah we'd we'd be Mm. really stoked if uh, you know you want to do that and come in and, and document that would be great it could be an amazing experience but for, for anyone else at home yeah wanting to have that connection to their own board we've got a another um a plane coming oh, over this, here now. this is a jet this one yeah so plenty of competition between um jet and um virgin <laughs> <laughs> but this this is the experience of the gold coast this is the experience of where we've grown up the crumb beautiful crumb in here you know the airport's always been there the birds are around which you've yeah. heard in this uh podcast and andy you're you're back doing the surf report again here for the Gold Coast. What's that? Thirty years you've been doing the surf report. Yeah, thirty years. Just oh. incredible, isn't it? Um, I was I I I'd retired in 2017, and then they actually asked me if I could do weekends the following year, and I said, oh okay. 
So I was just sort of under the radar during the weekends. And then the lady that was doing the reports during the week, who was also doing IT and social media for the radio station, she's moved on. So I said, oh, do you mind coming back for, well, it's not seven days a week, it's six days a week. We don't have a report on Friday, but yeah, from five o'clock, uh, five, six and seven, from Monday to Thursday, and then the weekends, six, seven and eight. And that's on CFM, where I started in 1989, and, um, and now Triple M as well, the two radio stations. So it's, it's a real buzz that I can still do this. And I actually record my own report and I log it into the program. I don't ring up anybody in the newsroom to record me like I used to, or I don't go live with the announcers. I do my own thing, which is really good because then I can really scrutinize what's going on with the forecasting. Uh, the long and short period of the swell, you know, checking the buoys, you know, seeing how things uh, are yeah. changing. Like right now, the sun's just come out, so it was pretty cloudy this morning, and now the sun's out. And you know, this weekend we're coming up the Anzac Day long weekend. Uh, rest in peace for you know our diggers on Anzac Day. Uh, but Anzac Day looks like a really good swell in the six to eight foot rain. So yeah, it's going to be pumping over the weekend and. It's pretty cool to come back at 68 years of age. Who would think that I could, you know, still do this and also a full-time job? So, yeah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to wrap this up now. Yeah, yeah, I think, I think we're, we're on about two hours. Yeah, we've, and we've, we've done it. Yeah, you've got to get out of here. Thanks for your time, Andy. Thanks Th so much, Aaron. It was a pleasure and yeah, love speaking to you and love hearing about all your adventures as well. Maybe one day I'll interview you and we'll get Aaron Shanks you know, word on diaries of the wild ones. <laughs> yeah, wicked. Oh, yeah, I think so. All right, Andy, always a pleasure, mate. It's always a pleasure going down memory lane. Yeah, definitely, <laughs> yeah. Wave of nostalgia. All right, All right. thanks thanks again, Aaron. Thanks, mate. So if you guys like this episode and would like to support keeping this podcast going and also get me up that mountain, please feel free to donate through the link in my bio on Diaries of the Wild Ones Instagram or the website diariesofthewildones.com and in the menu bar, hit the donate link. And please share this app on your social media stories or just tell your mum. A penal knife giveaway this week, guys, to whoever shares the podcast and tags Diaries of the Wild Ones. I'll choose a frother and send out a knife. Much love, guys. Enjoy. Jari apa, jari cinta, jari apa.